So the world is uh, the world's a dangerous place, right? You know, I spend a lot of my time uh, in a realm of the world that is, that is generally safe. You know, the world uh, of books, fantasy shows and movies. The world of, uh, you know, just a bunch of Christians sitting around talking about nerdy stuff like the Bible and how we're going to get people to actually read it, right? <laughs> so the most dangerous thing that I do on a, on a regular basis is get behind the wheel of my car. Not because I drive dangerously, but have you seen some of the people out there? <laughs> they do. So when it comes to fear, uh, I don't really encounter it as much as, as I know that a lot of people in this world do. At least not, you know, that, that gut-wrenching fight-or-flight kind of fear. You know, my pulse doesn't really get elevated. My palms are, are rarely sweaty. But here's the thing about fear. Just because I'm not experiencing those, those immediate, uh, obvious symptoms of fear doesn't mean that I'm not operating from a place that is based in fear. It just means that I've learned how to navigate my fears and cope with them in different ways than fighting or, or running away. And sometimes that can be a good thing. Some, some people go to therapy just to learn how to do this. So while it's sometimes a healthy thing, sometimes, sometimes the way that we deal with our fears is not healthy. Sometimes our fears create behavior that is detrimental to society, that hurts the people with whom we are meant to bear a Christian witness to. You see, when I was a little guy, uh, we lived in a town not too far outside of the city. And it was really a fine place by, you know, my standards, which were not very high as like a six-year-old. But um, it, was a, it was a row home, right, one set one block off of the main street. There was like 12 houses all smashed together, you know. And if you uh, walked up our front steps and uh, into our home, you would uh, take a look to the right, and you would see them sitting there. They were our couches, blue couches, brand new, purchased circa 1991. And from any seat on those couches, you could see perfectly the wooden console TV that we had on the other side of the room. And it was on those couches that we spent time together as a family. It was on those couches that my mom nursed my baby sister. It was on those couches that we watched the very first episode of The Simpsons, the very first episode of The X-Files. But it was also on that couch that I saw news reports of the invasion of Kuwait. It was on those couches that I saw video footage of tanks rolling into the Middle East. And it was on those couches that for some god-awful reason, my parents let me watch a show called America's Most Wanted, where a man inside of the box literally told me that he needed my help to find murderers all across America. <laughs> he taught me to be afraid. He taught me to be afraid of people. Specifically, I was afraid of murderers. I mean, 
But what I've learned by looking back is that I was afraid of much more than just the murders that the FBI definitely needed my help tracking down. I was afraid of people who might be murderers in my own town. What I unconsciously learned was that people who looked or acted different than me might be bad guys. And here's the thing. This isn't just a problem uh, facing six-year-olds who are watching TV shows that they are most definitely not qualified to be viewing. You see, fear of the other, whoever you know, the other might be, is a problem as old as time. So while for us here in 2020, that might be someone of, of a different race, a, a different religion, the police even, or our brothers and sisters of the LGBTQ community, or even our neighbor who has, in our humble opinion, a very, very ugly campaign sign out in front of their house. There has almost been, always been, a fear of the other in the world. Ever since Cain killed his brother Abel because he was afraid God loved him more, we have seen this issue. And unfortunately, for a long, long time, People have used the Bible to reinforce racism, to reinforce others' focused phobias because it's misunderstood and mistaught. And part of that is because the Old Testament has a lot of passages about people other than Israel being Israel's enemies. A lot of strict commands for God not to, for God telling the Israelites not to intermarry with the surrounding nations. And so while all of these commands were given in order to prevent Israel from wandering away from God, somehow, over generations and generations, this message got mistranslated. It got taught wrong. And so years of exile in Babylon and then this 400-year period between when they return to the land and Jesus shows up, there's political upheaval in what once was the nation of Israel. And it left the Jews with a new teaching about their Greek and Roman neighbors. They were the enemies, the occupation. They were referred to as dogs, as sinners, as unclean. And this mindset was reinforced by the, the teachings of a really legalistic sect of uh, Jewish people called Pharisees. But then, one day... One day, a new teacher came along. A new teacher who said things that were different. And this teacher, as you probably have figured out, is Jesus, right? And so Jesus got his followers together, and, and he climbed a mountain. Much like when Moses had climbed a mountain in the Old Testament to receive the law from God, Jesus brought his followers up on a mountain to tell them what it actually all meant. And on that mountain, Jesus began to teach about that law and how they were supposed to apply it in their life. And this is how he begins this section of teaching, which comes from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so Jesus is, is calling out a popular teaching in the synagogues that was a half-truth. Because the beginning part, love your neighbor, 
comes from the Hebrew Bible. It's from Leviticus 19.18. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. However, the second half doesn't appear in the Hebrew Bible at all. And so he says, I know that you've been hearing this teaching your whole life, but I've got something new that you should do. And so he goes on in the next verse, and he says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And to us, that sounds a little bit more like the Jesus that we know and love, right? We're, we're accustomed to, to these types of sayings. We might not really like them, but we at least know that this is the kind of like upside down, irrational, illogical stuff that Jesus always says. And maybe when you hear this, you have the same question in your head that probably Jesus's audience had. Why? <laughs> Why would I do that, Jesus? And so he goes on. So that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so to Jesus' Jewish audience, the term neighbor was reserved for people who were from their community, from their family, their tribe, their, their sect. They could very well live right next door to someone who they did not consider to be their neighbor. You see, essentially, only Jewish people were their neighbors, and everyone else was an enemy. And an enemy was anyone whom they had any level of hostility. And so these, these groups, the, the Jews and the, the Greeks, had a level of natural enmity, of, of struggle, of strife between them. You know, between, in the, the period between the Old and the New Testaments, uh, the Jews fought bitterly with this Greek oppression that had moved in. The Greeks had tried to infiltrate the religion and, and make the Jewish religion more like their, their Greek religion. They had infiltrated the government, the temple. They desecrated it, and which all caused a Jewish revolt, which is commemorated each year by the festival of Hanukkah. And so Jesus is saying, hey, those other people, those non-Jewish people, the occupation. If you want to truly be the children of God that you claim to be by being Israel, that you claim is your birthright, you're going to have to pray for them. Because God gives to them as well. They benefit from the sun which rises and sets each day. Doesn't the rain water the crops that feeds them too? He's saying, be better. Be better than the tax collectors and the pagans that you are so quick to talk trash about and hold a grudge against. He's saying, if you spent your time caring for the other among you, you might not have as much time to fear them. 
And the fear that Jesus' audience had towards non-Jewish people has the same general DNA as our fears today. So while we might not be Jews hating on Greeks, we have our own enemies. People who don't look like, act like, or think like we do. And I'll be honest, this is something that's really, really difficult to talk about. It's really difficult to be honest about with ourselves. And it's even more difficult to get out into the open air. But here are the three basic assumptions that we have as people that create our fear of the other. They are, one, that that the other is dangerous. Two, that the other will create scarcity in my life. And three, probably the most insidious, is that the other should become more like me. And so this this assumption that the other is dangerous, uh, let's get one thing straight. Sometimes the other is dangerous, right? But it's not because that someone is different than us. See, we all have the capability of being dangerous. But we are conditioned by uh, news, by TV, by movies, by culture, our families that we grow up in, to believe that race, rather than circumstances and the reality of the human heart, is what makes someone dangerous. And you see, my family growing up had kind of a dirty little secret. You see, draped over the back of those beautiful blue couches was always a throw blanket. My mom would change it out depending on the the season that we were in or what was new and hot in better homes and gardens. Uh, And so for years, I just figured she was trying to be fancy. And I think she was trying to be fancy, but those fancy throw blankets covered up something. You see, one night, my, my then stepfather woke up, and he looked out the window. And their bedroom window looked out onto the street in front of our house. And on the corner, there was a black man. So I don't know why. My stepdad got out of bed. He grabbed his handgun, and he went down into the living room. But because he was half asleep and it was the middle of the night, he tripped over somebody's toys, and the gun went off, and he shot the couch. (laughs) My mom was at work. I was at my dad's house, and he was home alone with my baby sister. It didn't go over too well. And so in the back of that couch, there remained a bullet hole covered by a throw blanket. And I think that at the core of the incident was fear, fear that was informed by racism, fear that could have gotten someone really hurt. And I think that this is the same kind of fear that Jewish folks lived with back in Jesus' day. You see, the Greeks hadn't proven themselves to be very neighborly in the past, and although the Romans were in charge now and pretty much let, let the Jewish people have their own culture and practice their own religion, the Jewish way of life was being threatened. Laws about purity were getting harder and harder to follow. And Rome, Rome governed with an iron fist. In fact, the, the king that they had put in charge just 30 years earlier 
had killed all of the babies in an attempt to kill Jesus. This reminded the Jewish people of a story of their ancestors, of a time when they lived in Egypt and the Pharaoh had killed all of the Hebrew babies. They knew this story. They saw the writing on the wall. They knew that there was a threat coming from the outside. And all that one needs to do in order to see this translated and played out in our current culture is to turn on the news. All you need to do is go and talk to a Muslim or even a Sikh or Indian neighbor about how they've been treated in America since 9-11. Talk to families who live just on the other side of Union Street down here about what it's like for their kids to go to school in Dunedin. Talk to Marquise McLaughlin's friends and family whose, whose killer tried to use Florida's stand-your-ground law to justify shooting him in the parking lot of a convenience store a mile down the road. His defense was he feared for his life. You see, fear of the other, although occasionally understandable, does not justify stereotyping an entire group of people, does not justify preventative justice. But sometimes, it's not that we're afraid that the other people are dangerous. Sometimes, physical harm isn't at the front of our minds. Sometimes, we're just simply afraid that their presence in our town, in our country, will mean that there, there won't be enough of whatever it is out there to go around. So we become afraid that, that the other is going to create scarcity in our life. And let's face it, this is the rhetoric of our times. And I don't know how to solve problems of immigration. But I do know that there is a fear that new people coming to America will take away the jobs of people who are already here. And this isn't new, and I'm pretty sure that it isn't true. And I'm sure that many of our ancestors faced this same type of rhetoric and discrimination when they came here through Ellis Island. But the fear of scarcity has driven nations to clash against nations, people groups to clash against people groups, and persons to clash against persons since, well, the first murder. Cain killed his brother Abel, because he thought that God's blessing of Abel would cause a, sort, a shortage of how much God could bless him. And this is a lie. This is a lie that is believed so deeply in the core of our humanity that our entire existence has caused it to actually happen. People with both power and a fear of scarcity have gathered up resources, created shortages and scarcity that God never intended. God intended for all of his creation to have not only enough to survive, but enough to thrive. But the human desire to control God's generous gifts to all of humanity is both the source of this fear of scarcity and the actual cause of it. So later on in, in his teaching in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has these words for us. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? So what Jesus is saying is this, hey, guys, there's enough to go around. God has provided and will continue to provide always. The poor and the immigrant aren't going to take away anything from you that God hasn't already given you to begin with. And I can't stress this point enough. If as a church we operate as people who fear reaching out and touching the lives of the community around us because we are worried that we won't have enough for us to keep our lights on, to keep our doors open. If that that fear keeps us from being the church, then we are not actually doing our job. See, the early church operated on, on this premise that those who had gave to support those who had lost everything when they chose to follow Jesus. They were worried about each other. They actively sought the welfare of the community around them. Now, I'm not trying to say that the early church was perfect. It was a human institution. So while they might not have been operating from a place where they were afraid of of not having enough. They certainly operated from a place of wondering how they were supposed to incorporate these new Greek and Roman people that wanted to join their church. And this gets into this last thing, this this last assumption, that the other should become like me. You see, there was quite a lot of controversy when non-Jewish people started to come to Christ. What must be done? Christianity was considered just a separate sect of Judaism. So it seemed as though, logically, that that Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, should probably become Jewish in order to be a Christian which would require them to follow the law of Moses, require men to become circumcised, as these were the the outward signs that you were were a Jew. However, once the matter was debated, uh, it was decided that this might be a little bit absurd. So here's what happens in Acts. This is Acts chapter 15. This is uh, called the Jerusalem Council. It says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. He said, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and belief. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Do you see it? 
while, while men see circumcision and, and keeping of the law as a means of inclusion, God sees the heart. God purifies the heart. God does not discriminate. And I think, I think, I think that you know what that means in our American context. So I won't harp on it for too long. But I'll just ask you to be honest with yourself about this. Are you more comfortable around people who adhere to the norms of the culture that you grew up in? Does a person of another race wearing a nice suit look different to you than someone of that very same race wearing clothing that reflects their own culture? And as Christians, do, do we together celebrate the diversity of the kingdom of God, or do we just hope that others will conform to our traditional American church culture? Are we afraid that the people with different ideas, different ways of speaking, and different ways of living outside of the church, do we worry that they're going to come in and threaten what we've been doing for a couple hundred of years? Because here's the deal. These are, are really, really tough questions. And if all of this is making you feel a little bit uncomfortable, that's good. See, as Christians, we need to remember that Christianity is not an American religion. It's not a white religion. We are not members of some exclusive club that is closed to people who think, talk, dance, or sing differently than we do. Even people who are not Christians are not the enemy because the Bible, and this is so important, the Bible doesn't start out being about Christians. The Bible doesn't even start out being about Israel. The first 11 chapters of the Bible are about all of humanity. Before there was another and the last chapters of the Bible are about all of humanity. See, this idea and the existence of the other is not biblical. We made that. We did this. See, we have manufactured the divide that exists in the world. And Jesus, Jesus has made a way for us to heal that. The cross is capable of bringing all people together. The cross is the great equalizer. It levels the playing field. It makes us all equal in God's eyes. And God says that he loves us all. So in order for, for us to make God's love evident and visible in our lives and in our world, we must heed the words of the Apostle John, who said this. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, in this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. 
Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And so John makes it pretty clear. What am I to do when I'm afraid of someone? Love them. Actively seek their welfare. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, looked out for the welfare of those who had nailed him to it, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that kind of radical love will drive out fear. That kind of radical love will allow us to see the shared humanity that we have with one another. That kind of radical love will allow the image of God in us to recognize the image of God in others. You see that couch, the one with the bullet hole in it that reminded my family of a night that fear won, stayed with us for a long time. When we moved to our next house, that couch came along. And we sat. We watched TV on that couch. The only time you saw that bullet hole was when your legs got cold and you pulled that blanket down to cover them. My mom read me the Bible on that couch. See, we couldn't afford to get rid of that couch. And the ironic thing is that it was part of a sleeper sofa set, a, a couch literally designed to make your house more hospitable and inviting to guests. But for us, it was a reminder of something sinister, something just underneath the surface of a beautiful throw blanket. So this is what I want you to look at. What's the blue couch in your house? The one you can't afford to get rid of? What's the reality hiding underneath the beauty of a throw blanket? Because we all have them. And I think that, that naming them helps take their power away. Naming them helps us to let go of our fear of the other. And so uh, Jason introduced last week that we're going to do something practical each week to, to help us overcome and, and alleviate our fears. And so, so this week we'll do something I'll teach you that, that help, will help you to overcome your, your fear of people that are different than you. And so we're going to have uh, just a, a little time of greeting, and, and we call it passing the peace here in church language. So while you are passing the peace of Christ to one another, when you shake that hand or give that hug, instead of just saying peace or, or uh, hello or good morning or, or whatever, why don't you hold that embrace for a minute? Not like a whole minute, but... And we'll be here for a long time. But for, for a moment, and as you look into the eyes of the shared humanity that you have with that person, think of one thing that you have in common. And so please, stand up and, and show the love of Christ to one another.
And so uh, this today, this today should be easy. We're all Christians here. We're all here for the same reason. But my challenge is that uh, all of this week, in, in your interactions in the world, take a look around. Notice the people around you. And instead of focusing on the differences that you have from them, find the similarities and celebrate them. Remember that our story is one of, of a God who came to heal the divide in our world. Our story is a story of a God who invites us to be a part of that mission by loving those who are different from us. Because we know that in God's eyes, we are all the same. We all bear his image. We are all God's children. And my friends, that, that is enough for us to live with one another unafraid.